You're listening to The Blind Stealing the Blinds, a weekly podcast for students of the game by students of the game. Join Dell and BJ in discussions about poker theory and bridging the gap between theory and application. We're all in this together, so let's get to it. This week's topic, a discussion with guests on whether to become a professional poker player. Hey Dell, how's it going this week? It's, it's going great. It's going great. Well, it's not going great. That's not true. I, I want to be honest. I lost my dog on Friday, and I'm, I'm still sad about it. And uh, she spent 17 years with us, and I'm a little sad about it. It, it kind of it breaks my heart. First, let me offer my condolences in person. I'm really sorry to hear the news, Del. I saw you posted on Facebook and in our Slack channel that your dog wasn't supposed to live very long, so I'm at least happy you were able to cherish 17 years of memories with her. She she had a liver shunt when we got her, um, and and I used to joke that she was the world's most expensive free pug because they said you can have her for free, but she has this liver shunt and she's going to need to eat special food or she's going to need to get an operation. If we had stuck with the special food, she was going to pass away within six months probably. So we got the operation and it was thirty five hundred dollars, the best thirty five hundred dollars I've ever spent in my life. And we were told that if she got the operation, she'd live two to five years. So she lived seventeen years, and you know I'm going to miss her. I'm going to miss her. It's the unfortunate part of having pets is you usually outlive them. Thanks for sharing, Dell. I know it might seem like a strange way to open a podcast, but this is real life. The listeners are on the same journey as us, and introing every show like a highlight reel is disingenuous. We're students of the game, four students of the game, and life happens. No one gets to tell you what you're supposed to feel, and it's okay to not be okay. That said, a common theme in our show, and this episode specifically, is the importance of community. And that's key when you're processing the rough patches. So again, Dell, thanks for sharing. Like when my dog passed away, I had a situation where one of the things that happens is playing poker makes me feel good. And I played poker, but I didn't play my best. I don't think it was wrong that I played poker, but I think it's a way you have to look at it is if this is what you do for a profession is just the right time to do when your emotions are not good for a professional poker player. So knowing that we have guests today that are going to help us discuss what is needed to be a professional poker player and whether or not we even want to bother. And we have on the show, Sebastian Drillet-Poitras and Dan Mergel. And we want to talk about what it takes to become a pro and whether you even want to be a pro. So first, let me introduce a Seabass. He's been playing for 12 years, even though he's only 34 years old. Young guy playing a lot of poker here. He started with Beyond Tells as one of the School of Cards products a long time ago, and that's when he got hooked into this type of teaching. He decided to go pro and planned to be pro by January 2019. I love that. If you've listened to our podcast about smart goals and setting specific timelines, I love that. So he joined the pro group, part of School of Cards, in August 2017. It wasn't easy nor perfect, but he ended up quitting his job as a poker dealer within 100 days (laughs) of starting the course. He currently lives in Montreal, born and raised, on the playgrounds where he spent most of his days. No, that's West Philadelphia. And he mainly plays 2-5. He loves tournaments much more, however, and he's been a dealer for 11 years. Seabass, welcome to the show. Thank you. 
And we also have Dan Mergel. Dan works in IT in a leadership role for a large corporation. And like me, he's the sole income provider for a family. I think that's kind of a dying breed. A generation ago, being a single family income with a stay-at-home mom was kind of par for the course. And now it seems to be the exception. So I'm glad to hear that we're in good company with Dan. He has nine children, all adults, and nine grandkids. When not playing poker, he can be found multi-day solo backpacking on the Appalachian Trail or riding motorcycle, probably not at the same time. Do they let motorcycles on the Appalachian Trail? They discourage it. They discourage it. Anyway, Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you. So we wanted to talk about what it takes to go pro and whether you ought to go pro. And Dell, you had a few thoughts about this. One of the things that occurs to me is that there's really no reason anybody should want to go pro. It, it takes a special level of masochism to want to be a pro poker player. You're going to take in, have to study a lot. The game is evolving, so you're constantly going to be working on your game, changing your game. It's not the healthiest lifestyle. Even if you manage to get to the gym every day, you're going to spend a lot of time sitting in front of a computer or at a table. You know, so why would anybody want to go pro in the first place? And for me, and the reason that we have Seabass and Dan here is because they're very much mirror in the sense that Seabass wanted to go pro. He is a pro. Dan could go pro and he has no desire to. I want to go pro. And the reason I want to go pro is because I want the freedom. I want the freedom to be able to stay home with my wife instead of having to travel around the country on the road to make a living. I want the freedom to be able to say, you know what, I just don't feel like working today. Or the freedom to say, you know, I'm going to work 10 hours today or four hours this day. I want the freedom that poker allows. Those are a lot of my thoughts, but I think that everybody has to have their own why in, in whether or not they want to be pro or not. And I think that with you, it's obvious that you could be a pro player. You choose not to be. And it's interesting where you get across, like people think it's easy. People think it's easy. I never thought it was easy, but I never realized how hard it was. I've been trying this for a couple of years now and, and I haven't, I still haven't quite gotten over the hump. So Dan, if we could ask you, what is your reason why behind poker? Dell had mentioned it's important, regardless if you're a pro or if you're a rec player, it's important to know your reason why. So would you be willing to share with us what your why is? Sure. There's two main whys. The first one, I think, and the most important is I enjoy it. So I enjoy being at the table. I love the diversity of the kind of players that I play with. There's all sorts of different players from all sorts of different walks of life who have all sorts of different interesting stories. So I enjoy that. And I also like it as a second income because I do play for profit. I play semi-seriously. I probably don't put in as much work as I should. I put in enough to be a winning player at the stakes that I play at. So it's a combination of I enjoy it. Uh, so it's a hobby, but I, but I like to have a hobby that actually gives me a pretty decent second income. So that's, that's my why. Interesting, interesting. Have you ever considered going pro in your career? I'm not really sure how long have you been playing poker. At, at some point, did the thought ever cross your mind? Yeah, so I've been playing semi-seriously since I started recording uh, and keeping track of my sessions and my hours. And so I've got, I've got around 5,500 hours in my database of recording, so over 5,000 hours. I play about eight or 900 hours a year. That's a lot of hours for somebody who is um, not full-time. I have a full-time job. So you can t tell I take it seriously. I've been playing before that years and years and years semi-seriously. Sometimes I've thought about going to pro, but probably for me at some point I will retire early earlier than you know sometime in my mid 50s and use it as a second income where I don't need the money, but it's nice to have. Excellent. Thank you. 
To put that volume in perspective, since I've been tracking my poker playing for maybe three years, I average about 250 hours a year. I'm kind of the weekend warrior. I have a 12-year-old son and a wife, so I have you know a young family. You have adult children, so I do have some more family obligations. As the weekend warrior, I would think putting 250 hours in a year is decent, but you've probably seen everything that's happened at the poker table. I love it when poker players will say, oh, have you ever encountered the scenario with blah, blah, blah? Of course you have. If you play enough volume, of course you've seen it. You've probably seen it three or four times. That's amazing you're able to put that much volume in. A buddy and I were talking a couple days ago about figuring out your numbers for retirement, what you need to retire by a certain age. Have you considered your poker income in that equation? I remember you had mentioned that you'd like to use it as like a second income or even just discretionary funds in retirement. But is that going to shift your retirement age forward any? It probably would if I was still living in Canada. So another interesting, maybe interesting thing for me is I moved from Canada. I'm Canadian. I moved from Canada to the States for my job. So if there was national health care in the United States... Um, so that I didn't have to bridge the gap between my work health care and being old enough to get Medicare or Medicaid, whichever it is for us old folks, uh, it would that would influence my decision because health care down here is really expensive. So yeah, that, that, that becomes, if I was in Canada and had access to the games that I have access down here, I would probably already be retired. Fun fact for those of you living in America, how you can remember the difference between Medicare and Medicaid. Gray hair, Medicare. Financial aid, <laughs> Medicaid. Please don't, don't leave that in. No, that's the way, if you can figure out a mnemonic to remember something, it just sticks in your head easier. So there you go. If you take nothing else from this podcast, just remember the difference between Medicare and Medicaid and you'll be set. So I have gray hair in my beard, so I'm all set for Medicare, yeah, right? Both. There you go. There you go. <laughs> all right. So Seabass, let's go to you. You actually went pro and you, it sounds like you gave yourself a timeline and a goal and an objective. So by January 2019, you set the goal to go pro. How did you go about formulating a plan and executing the plan to do that? Like what considerations did you make to make the switch from your W-2 job as a dealer to a pro? Um, I didn't want to put too much pressure, so I gave myself 15 months to accomplish that goal. I also went pro like years back, so probably in 2010 for two years, and I didn't go broke, but I wasn't really good at keeping track of money and uh, keeping my bankroll in track and uh, being accountable for my mistakes. So I failed at becoming a pro back then, and I didn't want to make the same mistake again. So I already had a path that I wanted to go on, but I didn't want to do the same thing that was doing before. So I wanted to improve myself and to be good enough not to stop being a pro again. I got a lot of encouragement from uh, all the coaches in school too. I was a junction in my life to stop the relationship and just like previously I stopped playing poker because of that relationship. So when that relationship stopped, I wanted to go back like with even more fire than before. I didn't really, really realize that uh, I quit the big part of me when I stopped playing poker. But I know I didn't want to do that again, so I went back full steam. They'll mention something about freedom that I think is also important, that it's easy to just not go play and just stay home with your wife or whatever. So you really need some guidelines to help you play. Otherwise, you'll just you'll be a pro, but not for long because you won't be playing, putting hours, and you just won't be making enough money to stop working. So you really need a good plan to... Like you can really force yourself to go play because some days you won't want to and you'll do horrible because of it. But you still need to have some type of goal about the hours you want to put during the year so that everything's taken care of. 
So Seabass, I'm curious to know what kind of systems you put in place to enforce that discipline to help hold you accountable either to others, a community, your wife. See, my challenge and one of the reasons I don't go pro is that I'm honestly afraid of tying my family's rather irrational addiction to food, clothing, and shelter to the money I could make at the poker table. I'm completely comfortable with the fact that I can pay for my car and auto repairs and invest in real estate and some other fun things with my poker winnings, but I can't see myself quitting my W-2 and playing full time one, because of the opportunity cost. I would have to crush 510 to come close to making the money I make in my current job. But apart from that, it's really the fear tying my food, clothing, and shelter addiction to poker. And I would be afraid that it would no longer be fun. I would be afraid that it would become my job. And when poker becomes not fun for me anymore, we just killed one of my passions. So how do you avoid all that? What, what systems do you put in place to keep it fun, keep it relevant, and provide for your family? Also, fun fact about Seabass is he's expecting his first child soon. Yeah, in three months. I think it's hard to put systems, and I don't think it's for everyone. I think it's a really tough choice to make and that you should think about it carefully before uh, even trying to go into such a path. I also didn't have a, a job before that was paying so much so that uh, playing poker was like a drop in salary or anything. If anything, it was an increase. And I'm not really playing all that much and playing like 30 hours a week. Like I'm far from that. I have a lot of freedom. I don't have to work as much as I used to, but to each their own. Like Dan said before, like healthcare is pretty cheap over here and the cost of living is too. So I don't have addictions to a lot of things that cost a lot of money. So I'm pretty much set in life with everything that I want to, but I'm also like, I don't have huge goals like of having a mansion and stuff like that. And uh, having two kids is what I want. So hopefully we go that route and that works out. I think uh, everything will be paid for me in like a few years. And after that, I'll just like ride that small train of mine till the end. So Dell is on this poker journey to become a pro. And Dell lives in New England, which is not too far from Canada. Seabass, would Canada be willing to accept Dell? Because it sounds like if Dell moved to Canada... It might lower the barrier to entry for him to go pro. <laughs> it might be easier for sure. Yeah, yeah. So the funny thing about that is, is I'm not sure Canada would accept my wife. <laughs> all joking aside, at all the coaches I have, I would say that Seabass is the one I gravitate to the most. And that's mostly because Seabass doesn't take anything I do personal. If I argue something and I'm stupid, he doesn't take it personal and, and he'll let me get there on my own. So eventually, Seabass and I have always been able to have a relationship that's not volatile. So I, I tend to gravitate towards it. I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out what the difference is between Seabass and I. How could he go pro in 90 days? I didn't ever know until today that he had tried it before. But I mean, I've spent that time. It's like, am I not as smart as Seabass? Am I just too stubborn? Do I not have enough discipline? The truth is that at, at least two of them are true. And the third one might be true also. The journey's taken me longer, or at least I thought it took me longer than Seabass, knowing that he tried it before for a couple of years. Now I don't feel like the journey's necessarily taking as long as I thought it was compared to him. There's things that have been improving over this last couple of years that needed to be fixed 
fixed before I could ever think about becoming a pro. One of them is that my bankroll management sucks. Well, now I know how to manage a bankroll, but I don't have one <laughs> to speak of. So I got to get that bankroll before I can apply those new skills. My discipline sucks. Well, now I can play 20 hours a week, no matter what. And that's while working a full-time job. There are weeks that I put in 35 to 40 hours of playing that when I'm laid off or my job is slower, I think that the reality is, is that you need to find people that does what you want to do and start to emulate. And there's some things I don't emulate about CBAS that I probably should, that would definitely increase my ability to, to get to where I want to be. CBAS will respond on literally every single hand history he comes across. I don't do that. Matter of fact, sometimes I'll read a hand history and it's like, yeah, this isn't even worth my time. Well, that's not true. It's always worth my time because the, the worst it does is it reinforces a basic that I need to have that one little synapsis in my brain to get a little thicker and a little quicker and a little, this is the way it is. There's still this gap between what CBAS is and what I want to be. I think that what happens is people will tell themselves, yeah, I can't be a pro because I can't beat these people at one, two, because they don't know how to play. No, that's not true. There's another reason why you can't be a pro and it's you. It's you personally. It's not the other players around. If we focus on ourselves, eventually we get there, especially if we have help from people like CBAS and people who want us to succeed. So I think there are two key takeaways from what Dell was sharing. One is that we're all on our own journey. We're all on our own path. True. And everybody's journey on their path comes with hiccups. Sometimes you skip levels. Sometimes you revisit the same level multiple times, and that's fine. Wherever you are on your journey, that's where you are. And life, at least for me, has always just been a competition with myself. Can I be a better version of me today than I was yesterday? And if you make 1% increases in your life, every day. In 365 days, you will transform yourself unrecognizably. The second thing is that regardless of where we are on that path, we need a team. We need people we can rely on that can help us. So I'm actually curious to hear from both Dan and Seabass. Who do you have on your team to help you along your poker journeys wherever you are? Dan, you don't want to go pro, but you could play pretty well in retirement, maybe even shifting that retirement date earlier. Seabass, you are a pro. Coaches, mentors, colleagues. For me, my wife and son completely encourage and endorse my playing poker. I think it's interesting that whenever I play a session, my wife never says, good luck. She says, stick to the plan. Because she knows I'm playing for money. I'm playing for fun, but I'm also playing for money. So my wife and son are on my team. I think I have Dell on my team. I know Dan is on my team because I see you at our local casino. So I know you and I can talk hand histories or profiles or whatever. And then the community, the School of Cards community for me, that's all part of my team. All that being said, who would you two consider to be on your team during your journey? So I guess I can go first as the, as the non-pro. Uh, it's interesting you talk about, I don't talk about poker with my wife at all. Um, two reasons. One, she has no interest in the game at all. Not even a little bit. Um, she probably likes me being out of the house to go play <laughs> and she likes the money. Uh, we don't talk about wins or losses. I think yesterday I was in the game for $4,000 playing two five ten. So normal people, like whether you win or lose, you know, I had a small losing session yesterday at those stakes for what I think is small. And when you, if I talk about that, 
with civilians or non-poker players, they look at me like their eyes bugged out. And he said, yeah, but the day before I made three grand. So they, they just don't think that way. My network, my support network, I really didn't have one until I found the path in the school of cards. I was a two plus two uh, member for a long time. Three quarters of the conversation discourse that goes on there is just toxic. <laughs> and maybe one quarter to, to even less than that is good. Uh, um, long time crush live poker. I got a lot out of that, but not a lot of community out that. So for my community, it's, you know, like BJU, because we're we play in the same room uh Seabass and other coaches and the other players and I think that for me, I'm not plugging school of cards or anything you can find a community like this but it's really our conversations that I think are the best where I hear post-hand histories talk about theory talk about strategy I really like the diversity of opinion and a diversity of thought as people talk through situations, whether it's technical poker decisions or the kind of more um, touchy-feely conversations about life that help contribute to mindset and all that kind of stuff for me. So it's that community. Mine is pretty similar to BJ, so I'm going to sound like a copycat, but uh, my wife also helps a lot. She doesn't know much about poker itself, but she knows about the uh, same thing about not wishing luck because uh, we're not really basing our income on luck. It's just about Uh, sticking to the plan and takes a lot of discipline in so many different ways that it may sound easy but actually like it's a constant grind like even though like we know the pitfalls like we still fall into them from time to time so we need someone strong to keep us out of it she knows about my pitfalls and she knows uh, usually how to realize when i'm in it so she's good at keeping me in line and just like remember why you play for get out of this zone right now because uh, you're hurting yourself and it's just like going downhill from there and it's going to be uh, it's easy to bring your negativity with you and just like dig yourself into a hole so it's important to put it to a stop and even like stop playing if you need to refocus and go back afterwards because you can decimate everything you've worked for for a year in just like a matter of few sessions so if you're not careful about things that are putting you down and like it could be a lot of stuff like even life will be hard on you so if your mental game is weak or if you have like a very tough patch in life you need to avoid playing or put yourself into better support to plow through that tough part it's hard you need a lot of money on the side just to take a few a few months off if you need to and not to be stressed by money or life engagement That's interesting. I, I'd like to add on a little bit, I guess, to that, if that's all right. So we talk about the freedom and the mental aspect in that, how so, so important to that. It's one of the other reasons why it leans me towards keeping my day job, which pays well, is that because of my day job that I do well, when I play poker and I'm enjoying it, I'm free. And if I lose, it doesn't matter. And I think that might give me an edge mentally over folks who are trying to pay the rent for their poker um and it keeps my head in a space that, that lets me enjoy it win or lose so I, it gives me a kind of a freedom in my poker game because i'm not paying my rent with poker I'm in the same boat as Dan. I'm glad I heard you say that because it resonates strongly with me. I can have a losing session at live and bounce back without a problem because at the end of the day, I'm playing with money I'm willing to lose. I don't want to lose it, of course, but if worse comes to worst and I crash my entire bankroll, I just won't play for a while. I'll build it back up from my personal life role, replenish my bankroll, and then go from there. Yeah, there is a certain sense of freedom where I'm playing a game and it's fun and it's relatively carefree. So thank you for that. Seabass, I had one question for you. If you could go back in time and tell yourself one or two tidbits of wisdom you've learned since becoming pro that would help younger Seabass make that transition more easily, what would those one or two things be? Mm, good one. 
I'm not trying to sell anything, but I think you need like uh, a really good community and people to support you into that decision. So whether you want to follow school of cards or anything else outside, like just having a wife that supports you isn't going to make you a poker pro right away. So you should try to find out pros or people that can share their uh, vision of it so that you can see if that's fine for you or if you want something different because there's so many things that comes with the whole lifestyle and the whole challenges and stuff like that that you'll need other people's opinions to go through and face uh, these challenges yourself so i don't think you can make it alone i don't think i would have done it alone that's probably what i failed when i first came pro i was on my own and i was really trying to reach out i thought i had it all figured out poker was easier back then so it was i was making money but i wasn't improving at all so at some point the game caught up to me and i had nowhere to go i think you need a good support group to help you bounce ideas and just like keep challenging yourself Something I'd like to continue about what you guys were saying, it's also that uh, even though we're playing for a living, or I mean, I'm playing for a living, even though like I can face like a couple of few losing sessions, like the pressure doesn't really set in because my life role and bankroll are both separate. So just because like I lose 15 sessions in a row, it doesn't really affect my lifestyle. Like mentally, it'll be hard. But even if you play for fun on the weekends, if you play 15 sessions in a row, you're still going to be annoyed by it and it's still going to affect your game. So we both face the same things. And if the pressure is too much, it's probably because you're playing a stake that is too high for you. So you can always like go down a few notch if that's happening to you. And we did that like all of us, like it does happen sometimes that just things aren't going well. So we just like go down in stakes. And usually that's a really big boost in confidence because like we are crushing these people usually more than we are at the, our habitual stakes. So that's a good way to bounce back and get back in the fight. That's really interesting, Seabass. And you mentioned one thing specifically that really piqued my interest. You mentioned a distinction between your bankroll and your life role. Given that poker is your primary source of income, how is it that your life role and bankroll are in fact separate? I always thought they had to be the same thing, which was why I'm hesitant to go pro, tethering all of my basic needs on my ability to play poker. So help us understand that distinction. Okay, some clarification about uh, having multiple bankrolls. So basically what you want is like you make a budget in life is the same thing. I have six different bankrolls. So I have my poker bankroll. I have a life bankroll that includes like car, food, mortgage, electricity, internet, phones, stuff like that. I have another bankroll for emergencies, insurance. I also have a bankroll for vacations. I have a bankroll for splurges or gifts. Now it's new. I didn't have that before, but now I have a bankroll for a baby because that's coming in two months. Every time I play in a session, I split my winnings into all of these bankrolls. So when I win, 40%, and the percentage can change for all of you. Like even my percentage aren't set in stone. I change them like every year, depending on my priorities and what I want to do this year. Right now, it's split up at, as 40% uh, goes back into the poker bankroll. 30% goes back into life. So that pays everything I need to, to survive and stuff like that. 5% goes into emergencies insurance. 10% goes into vacations because vacations are important to me. I usually take about uh, eight weeks of vacation per year, and that's why it's bigger than emergencies and stuff like that. Another one is gifts, 10% as well. So a bunch of gifts for a different reason. It can also be splurges. So sometimes just like uh, buy something expensive that I wouldn't otherwise just because I want to reward myself for hard work or stuff like that. And the new bankroll is 5% for baby. 
So baby is split into two. One percent of it is going for his tuition, so college funds and stuff like that, and four percent is for everything that we'll need to in the very near future. So I started doing that since we knew we were pregnant. So that's about December. So there's already a hefty bankroll for that. So we're in no rush, no matter what happens. So. I can still survive the waves, even though I lose. I only lose in my poker bankroll. All my other bankrolls are separated from it. So if I lose, it's 100% from my poker bankroll. And if I win, all my other bankrolls increase. So this is how I do it. This is how you should also do your budget in life. like So that when an emergency face up, like you have uh, security funds or stuff like that. So it's all about planning, really. Thanks, Seabass, for those tips on how to break apart your poker bankroll into different sections for your life role. I love how you take your winnings and put it into different bins, but if you lose, it comes strictly out of your poker bankroll. I'm gonna do that for myself, starting now. Whenever I come away with a winning session, I would always just spend it on whatever. Yeah, the primary categories are paying for my car and real estate investment, but I would come away from a winning session and say, let's order sushi, or let's order pizza, or let's get a VR headset, without any thought about whether I'm using my bankroll as wisely as I could. Also, if I have a losing session, it would come out of that same slush fund. So there's no differentiation between winning and losing. And I want to make that change. So thank you for that. I think that one of the things that I want to mention, because it's been brought up and in, in the thing is that if you're playing for money that you're not willing to lose, you're making a mistake. And it doesn't matter if you've got a bankroll or a budget. If you're going to go play with that month's rent, you've made a mistake. It should never be that on any other level. And if you are doing that, you might want to seek help. You probably have a gambling problem. This is not one of those things of like, hey, grab the last $200 you have to your name and go play one, two, and you'll, and you'll take and succeed. No, you'll probably fail. The reality is, is, is you're probably going to go broke and you're probably going to wonder where, where you're going to eat. And it's just not worth it. When I think about it, when I listen to Dan and BJ, and I think about myself, I think I would describe all of us as semi-pro. While I don't have a bankroll now, I've still used poker to pay bills occasionally. I have not been able to make it my sole income. I know BJ has done a lot with his bankroll. He's been able to make investments with it. He's been able to make payments with it. Dan talks about when he gets to retirement, it's his second income. Well, that to me sounds like semi-pro players. And I think we all take it serious at that level. I think the difference is BJ and, and Dan are very content where they're at, and I am not. I think that that can be the difference in people, whether or not they need to go pro. On my level, I look at myself as I need to go pro. But I don't always do the things I need to do in order to get that need met. I don't comment on hand histories enough. I don't put aside the money I say I'm going to put aside. I don't interact with professional players enough. You were talking earlier about your support group. My support group is a bunch of professional players that I don't talk to enough. The wife is part of my support group. I thought it was interesting when Dan said his wife has no interest in poker. My wife has zero interest in poker. And yet I still process every session with her just about. And she'll ask me how it went. And she doesn't know poker. She doesn't understand. What she's concerned about was how did I do? Did I make good decisions? Was I doing the things I needed to do? Sometimes the answer is no, I didn't. But more often now, it with each passing session, it's far more likely I'm going to say I did everything I was supposed to do. Dan and Seabass, thank you for joining us on the show. Before we close, I'd like to 
open it up for final comments. Do either of you have any final tidbits of wisdom about where you are on your path and where the lessons you've learned might help others on their path decide whether or not to go pro? You need to understand why you're playing and what you're trying to get out of it. And like Dell, I think you were um, astute when you're observing that BGNI, or at least me, is content. I couldn't make as much money at 510 as I do at my day job. It's not possible. So my situation is a little different, right? If if I decided to just go pro, I'm going to make less money even if I'm crushing 510. So maybe that's not everybody everybody else's situation. You guys are all part of the same community. You can probably tell I don't work quite as hard at my game as some others. And so I have a pretty decent win rate, probably better than, well, definitely better than most that I'm playing with because I'm a winning player. But I know that higher win rates are possible. But I'm content with what I've got because I understand really well why I'm playing and what I'm trying to get out of it. I think it's just really important to understand what you're trying to get out of the game and how it fits in with your life life to make that decision for you. I think if you're going to go pro, it's a hard way to make an easy living. So I want to just take a moment. We don't mention it a lot. BJ and I are members of the Path School of Cards. And I'm going to take a moment to mention that Seabass is one of the coaches. Dan is a member of the Path. There are a lot of good training sites out there. BJ and I have mentioned in the past when we had Matt Vaughn on why we chose School of Cards. We're not saying it's the only one, but if you wanted to get coaching from Seabass, that's a good place to start. And I know that Seabass used to do private coaching. Do you still do private coaching, Seabass? I do, but uh, not a lot. Like, it's on and off. Some people are on vacation right now, so it's not happening at the moment. But if somebody wanted to contact you for private coaching, how would they do that? Uh, sure. You can always send me an email at superdroll, S-U-P-E-R-D-R-O-L-L. You can see how professional that sounds, right? <laughs> at oddmail.com. So uh, that's what I do. We'll link that in the show notes. Thank you. Yeah. Well, so I, I've, I've kind of said everything I need to. Anything else, BJ? No, I have nothing else to add. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you, Seabass. Seabass, I'll see you online. Dan, I'll see you at the casino probably this weekend. I'm leaving right now to go try to get into the overnight game. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Well, keep me posted. All right, thanks, everyone, for joining us. And until next week, this is The Blind Stealing the Blinds. Like what you heard? Head over to anchor.fm slash the blind stealing the blind to continue the conversation and join us on the socials. While you're there, you can also support the show. One blind per month is all we ask. 